We are talking about prayer, and we started off last time with some things out of the Siddur, and what we said there is prayer is the process by which you get with God and discovering who you are, clarifying what your desires are, and figuring out what you should be and how you should achieve that transformation. In addition to engaging the heart, it engages the mind and it helps you to differentiate and to clarify and to decide things, to sort out the important from the immediate. It also gives you a way to remove yourself from the tumult of everyday life. Everyday life has a way of crowding in around you and, and making you pay attention to things that are urgent but not necessarily important. And prayer gives you a respite from that so that you can get with God and get some rest. So where we're going to go from here is we're going to be in Luke chapter 11 through 18. And Yeshua talks about prayer. So we're going to go through what he had to say about prayer and see what we can learn from him. So the first place we go is what's called the Lord's Prayer. And there are actually a couple of versions of this. The one I'm going to read is from Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to read it in New King James. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So the first thing to understand is prayer is a skill. And it's something that can be learned. And when you find someone that has these wonderful, powerful, eloquent prayers, it's somebody who spent time praying, time studying prayer, time studying the Word of God, and that time spent with God and that study is now coming forth from his mouth. So if even the disciples had to ask to be taught how to pray, I will suggest to you that it's something that we should all be studying. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, What's going to happen is he is going to go immediately into the parable of the persistent friend. And so what I'm going to suggest to you is that the examples he's going to give you from here on out are by way of expansion and clarification. So what he's done is he's given you what I have heard called a template. I've heard it also called a model prayer. So let's look at it. The first part of it is who do you direct the message to? The second thing you do is you put yourself in perspective with relation to him. So what you say is, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what you're doing is you are setting yourself in the proper perspective with relationship to God. And he's holy. His name is holy. We are members of his kingdom, and his kingdom at some point is going to come, and it is our desire that that happen soon. 
And that's what we pray in the Amidah, when we do the Amidah on Shabbat, that your kingdom be established speedily in our day. And then, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This one perhaps requires a moment. Why would we be praying that God's will be done? Of course God's will is going to be done because he's God, right? He's got all the marbles. If you look at it as being formulaic, which is to say, you are putting yourself in his service. Certainly this can be seen in that spirit. I will suggest there's something else going on here. God's will is not self-enforcing. There are lots and lots of things that God wills that do not come to pass. It says in Scripture, God's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should be saved, right? Is everybody saved? No. And if you look at God's relationship with Israel, where he says, I want you to come to me. I want you to be faithful to me. I want you to obey me. I want to be close to you. I want you to live in the land. You know, all, and none of that happens. Israel just sort of thumbs her nose at him and goes off into the weeds. God's will is not self-enforcing. Okay, and God is sovereign. But most people don't understand what sovereignty means. There are lots and lots of instances where a king makes a law, which he can do. As the king, he is absolutely able to make whatever laws that he wants. Once he has made that law, however, he is bound by it himself. So when we say God is sovereign, what that means is nobody else makes the rules for God. God makes his own rules. He can decide whatever rules he wants. He has told us what his rules are in Scripture. He has also told us in Scripture that his word is reliable and he will abide by the rules that he has made. And one of the rules he made first rattle out of the box is... Adam, you're in charge. Now, Adam blew it, but God did not say, whoops, made a big mistake there. Adam, you're not in charge anymore. I'm going to get somebody else. No, no, no. Adam is still in charge. And there are procedures that God himself has set up that God, he binds himself. Everybody understand, anybody else making him do it. Because he is faithful, he does it. And because... He has bound himself by the rules that he has made. There are things that don't happen on earth the way God wants them to happen. The independent clause is thy will be done. The dependent clause is on earth as it is in heaven, which is to say your will is being done properly in heaven where you live. Let's get the earth in line the way it's supposed to be and the way you want it to be. That's how I read that. Now, that doesn't mean that it being a formulaic thing that says, I am in your service, is not also correct. Both of those can be correct. And what you're doing is you are placing yourself in his service. In other words, you are coming before the king and said, King, your will be done. The implication being is, I will do it. Tell me what to do and I will do it. And that's the sense of coming before him as a servant. But you're also saying... There's stuff here on this planet that isn't going according to your will, and may that be changed. The implication being, tell me what to do and I'll help change it. Because we're the ones that can make that happen. God can't make that happen. He depends upon us to make that happen. That's why we're here. That's our job. And so what we're doing is we're placing ourselves under his authority, and we're saying, your will be done. 
the implication being, tell me what to do, boss, I'll do it, whatever your will is. One of us, or many of us, have got to be the ones that make his will come to pass. And again, that's not because of any lack of ability on God's part. It's because of the rules that he himself set up. Give us this day our daily bread. Straightforward. Go ahead and feed us. We are the sheep of your pasture. Our care is in your hands. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now that is a single sentence. And Yeshua himself says over and over and over again, as does the Torah, if you haven't forgiven your brother, how do you expect God to forgive you? If you're bringing your offering and you have something against your brother, leave your offering, go back, make it right with your brother, and then come back and sacrifice. How often should you forgive your brother? Seven times, 70 times? By the measure with which you measure, it will be measured out to you. All of these speak to you need to get right with your brother before you can come to God and ask him to make it right between you. But again, I think it's, it's real important that both of those things are in there. Please forgive us, and we're coming to you clean. We have forgiven those who are indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And again, what you're praying for there is that you not be tempted beyond what you can handle. And in other places in Scripture, it says you won't be. And finally, asking for deliverance, which is salvation. Okay, I'm going to switch Bible versions here. And I'm going to go now to the parable of the friend at midnight. And I'm now in the English Standard Version. So now, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In order to understand this, you got to understand the social context. This is on the way to Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem at this point. And the men that he's talking to are all Galileans. They're not big city people. In a village in Israel, they're small, they're agricultural, and there are certain social expectations that everybody conforms to. The first and most powerful is hospitality. And furthermore, typically they would have like a central oven where everybody would bake. So everybody knows who just baked bread. And you bake like once a week and and so forth. So everybody knows who's doing what. It's a small community. And if you don't have any bread, you know who just did their baking today. Now the one who's knocking on the door is coming with an iron-clad request. The most important thing to the village is hospitality and its reputation as being hospitable. So if you come into a village and you are not treated well, the whole village's reputation suffers. I'm taking this from 
Brad Young. And he spent a number of years living in countryside villages in Lebanon and in Israel. They'd be throwing a dinner party. They had servants. And they would be invited to somebody else's house for a dinner party. And when they got there, they would find their own serving pieces at this person's house being used to serve the feast. And what had happened is the servants of the host had gone to the servants of the invitees and said, we need a chafing dish, more chairs, you know, that kind of thing. No theft involved. I mean, it, it all got cleaned up and, and put back at the end of the feast. But if you didn't have enough of your own stuff to set a proper table and properly entertain a guest, you would go to other people in the neighborhood and say, I need a chafing dish. I need some of this in order to set a proper table in front of my guest. So what's happening here is we have an unexpected traveler who showed up. We don't have enough bread to set, and sort of the minimum that you set before someone is bread and salt. No matter how poor you are, bread and salt is sort of the minimum, and then you go up from there, depending on what your status is. So the one making a request has an ironclad request. So to people listening to this thing, this is a rabbinic kind of a thing. First one, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, in other words, this will not happen. It's sort of like, can you imagine this happening? And the answer to that is no. We cannot imagine that this could happen. Okay? So the first part of this is, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine will come, has come to me on his journey and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer him and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. In other words, this will not happen. It's not at all unlikely that you could wind up knocking on some guy's door in the middle of the night looking for bread. That is not unreasonable. The thought that he would turn you down is what is unreasonable. That will not happen. This is a standard rabbinic argument. What you do is you say, what will not happen, and then you compare that to God. In other words, if even your neighbor, who is a sinner just like you are, is going to do the right thing, then how much more will God do the right thing? So what we're doing is we're setting up a patently ridiculous situation and saying you can't even imagine your sinful neighbor doing this to you. What makes you think God would do something like that to you? That's where we're going with the parable. I say to you, in other words, this is what will happen. Though he will not give him having risen because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And this, yet because of his persistence, may be a typo in the Bible. And I don't know what the Greek word is. But there's a word that is a letter different, one of which is persistence. The other one is sense of social obligation. In other words, I would be embarrassed not to do this. And the two words are very close. And what I've read indicates that there may be a typo. And what it really means to be said here is because of social pressure is, I guess, the closest way to say it. He'll do it. Even if he doesn't want to get up, even if he doesn't like you, because he knows that if he doesn't, It'll be all over town tomorrow that he didn't, so he will. It's important which it is, and that's the crux of this whole parable. If the word is truly persistence, then the responsibility for getting the prayer answered is on the prayer. In other words, you keep banging on the door until the guy finally gets tired of you and comes down and throws bread at you to get you out of the door. That's the case if it's persistence. If, on the other hand, it's social obligation, you only need to knock once. And because of the way that that is written, it is generally taught 
that you grab a hold of the horns of the altar and just keep shaking until the coins come out, or words to that effect, right? I mean, that's the way it's taught. And I am suggesting to you that that's not a valid lesson. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that persistence in prayer is invalid, but you do not have to keep smacking God like the side of a defective Coke machine until he finally... (laughs) That isn't the case. God is always on. The problem is either you or somebody between you and God. The problem is not God. And if you are trying to convince God to do something, you've got the wrong attitude in prayer. And based on that, that's why I like the idea of this being yet because of his, and the word that Young uses is shame, as in, I would be ashamed not to do what's right, to avoid shame. That makes a great deal more sense to me, because that fits the scenario. So the whole sense of this is it's now an expansion, if you will, on the Lord's Prayer. And he starts off with this first parable, and he leads off with, if you went to one of your friends at midnight, in need of something, you cannot imagine being turned down. What makes you think that you can't go to God with the same confidence? That's the lesson that is being taught in this parable. So this next vignette, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Is there any connotation of nagging there? And then, in the middle, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? And again, can you imagine a father being asked for bread by a son, turning around and giving the kid a rock? Can any of you imagine that? Well, of course, no, you can't imagine that. And again, what you're doing is you are contrasting an earthly father with God. So if you can't imagine this of your earthly father, what makes you think that your heavenly father is going to be any less generous, any less caring, so forth. So this is a heavy and light argument. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? By the way, all of these things are similar shapes. So a loaf of bread and a stone, a fish and a snake, similar shape. Scorpion, when it gets its tail all tucked up is sort of oval and round like an egg. So again, they're they're shape, synonyms, if you will. And then now the contrast, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, heavy and light, will your heavenly father give the, whoops, oh, we've just changed subject, haven't we? You've got to go back to the Lord's Prayer. So what I'm suggesting to you is we may have a progression here. You start off with the Lord's Prayer, Then you talk about the character of God compared to the neighbor who's grumpy about being wakened in the middle of the night. Now you go and you compare with a human father. And the final thing is the Holy Spirit. The implication is that the Holy Spirit will be one of the keys to your future prayer. Given the placement and the sequencing, perhaps what is being said here is all you really need is the Holy Spirit since he is the source of all power and the source of all wisdom. There is a progression and a maturation being described here. And it was likened to what happened at Shavuot, where the disciples walked with the Lord. They had to go through the crucifixion. Then they had to go through 50 days. And at the end of that, they were finally ready to receive the Holy Spirit. So in the progression here, 
you start off with the establishment of a relationship in the Lord's Prayer, and then you progress to a knowledge and an understanding of who the Father is, and at the end of that process, you receive the Holy Spirit. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.